thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your life. Welcome to Wellness Women Radio for the women with big dreams who dare to be different and who want to thrive in health, work and play. Dr. Ashley Bond and Dr. Andrea Huddleston bring you a weekly podcast to help you master true health and create an exceptional life. Hello, lovely ladies. Are you having a wonderful day? Because we certainly hope so. And we hope that after this episode this week, you're going to have an even better day because you're feeling empowered and uh, informed and able to make some choices in regards to your health and well-being. Welcome to Wellness Women Radio. I'm Ashley. And I'm Andrea. And we look forward to, uh, I guess, talking over a big topic this week, which we haven't touched on yet, which, I mean, it's hard to believe, Andy, that we've done this many episodes. We haven't actually talked about this topic, but it's uh, it's somewhat complicated and it's something that does affect a lot of women. Um, and unfortunately, it seems as though that a lot of them feel as though they don't have many choices when it comes around this topic. So let's talk to you guys about fibroids today. And unfortunately, it affects somewhere between 20 to 80%. Now, that's a very broad range because it depends on age and uh, a couple of other environmental plus genetic and lifestyle factors. But um, unfortunately, it means that a lot of women are affected by fibroids. And Andrew, you Mm. see this a lot in practice as well. Um, We both have patients that come in and have explained, I guess, firsthand just how much this affects their life and their lifestyle um, and how crippling and how painful it can be when they know they've got it and of course then the effects it has on a lot of other areas of their health and some people are actually going around with fibroids and don't even know they have it which is uh, pretty interesting as well but that can be a good thing if if they don't know it means that they're not really causing any harm or discomfort at the time um and let me just explain what fibroids are just in case you haven't heard of them or you don't know what they are so fibroids are or leomyomas um which is the medical terminology for it uh is a benign growth within the uterus or within certain degrees of the uterus within the muscle or growing on a stalk within the uterine tissue as well. Um, And they're really interesting kind of growth tissue because it's very healthy tissue, just like a lot of um, tumors. But these are actually really dense muscle fibers that then grow in a circular kind of layers and it's it's like a really dense little compressed bundle of smooth muscle tissue that's highly vascularized on the outside but not so much on the inside as well so it's got really good blood flow outside but not so much within it which means that they can grow very very large they can actually bleed into themselves as well um, and they can cause all sorts of discomfort menstrual issues and fertility issues too yeah, and unfortunately, the medical fraternity just doesn't know exactly what causes or why fibroids occur. Um, but we do certainly know that the female hormones of estrogen and progesterone play a really big role in stimulating the growth of fibroids. And this is why a lot of treatment is geared towards changing the hormonal profile in order to try and change the growth rates of fibroids. I mean, unfortunately, it does happen to a lot of women in the reproductive age. So this is at a time when our cycles and our hormones can be quite fluctuating. And of course, then you get some very varied growth rates at times incredibly problematic and at other times um, almost symptomatically absent. So it can be confusing and also concerning because I know a lot of women, as soon as they think of a growth within their reproductive area, we start to get concerns about cancer. And as far as the studies and science have shown, this is not a precursor for cancer. This is an independent uh, condition. But mm-hmm. just, yeah, just to have that discussion that um, is, as far as the science and the doctors and the research is at this stage, it's not considered a higher risk for, for cancer. But 
to say that hormonal imbalances could present high risks for cancer. That is a true statement. Yeah, certainly. And fibroids, we know, are very estrogen dependent and they're much higher in women who have an estrogen dominant kind of presentation. Um, so it's really interesting to see that that um, the estrogen hormone, so if you've kind of been an over estrogenergic type state, that seems to feed the growth of that smooth muscle tissue. They're not entirely sure why that happens, but I guess that that estrogen is that hormone that helps with proliferation, which means that's what causes everything to grow. So when we've got more of that, if there are any kind of underlying issues, then that's going to exacerbate that change as well. Yeah, and some of the women I guess we've spoken to and my clients or patients that have had concerns with this, sometimes the first and foremost, the uh, symptoms that they're experiencing are certainly the heavy painful periods. So heavy bleeding, prolonged periods, usually they go anywhere from five to seven to nine days or longer, which is horrific to think in any given month they're bleeding for more than a week. Um, and of course, that then leads in turn to concerns with iron deficiency and anemia. So they'll mm -hmm. often show test results with uh, iron deficiency. And and it can also cause things like back pain. So now as chiropractors, how often we have clients come to us because of back pain. And it's really important for us to, to differentiate the causes of that back pain. And I certainly know that I've found times of back pain episodes and certainly correlating to the issues in regards to fibroids. So it's, yeah, it's a big deal. Um, and for someone as well, it can be unusual symptoms such as always having a sensation like they need to void their bladder so they're always urgent mm -hmm. with their bladder function and that has a lot to do with that pressure that's built up because of the growth of the fibroid um, they may even actually have a feeling like their tummy's always bloated and, and distended it can be large enough to have a distension in the abdomen so um, and certainly things like painful period painful sex these are, are connected to, to fibroids yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, a classic kind of example, if someone is symptomatic with it, is they'll sort of be clutching their lower abdomen and they'll almost look like they have that lower abdomen bloating and saying, look, I look like I'm five months pregnant. Look at this, you know, bloating and distension. And we know that it's not from a gastrointestinal source. It's more from, um, you know, like a uterine sort of lower pelvic sort of issue. And they'll say that they feel like everything's really congested. Um, and I hear that a lot. It's like it feels congested and that's a perfect descriptive term because there's a lot of stagnation around that area too. And what, Andrew, would you expect? How would someone find out if they had fibroids? If, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, gosh, that really does fit kind of a lot of the symptoms that I'm experiencing, but I keep getting told it's just a period thing and I need to go on the pill and do all that sort of, uh, you know, biochemical change. What should someone be asking for? How do we find out whether we have fibroids? Look, any um, really heavy bleeding and prolonged bleeding should absolutely be investigated no matter what. And it should be investigated with ultrasonography. Um, and, you know, this might be something that your gynecologist um, will do themselves or your GP might send you out for that, um, as well as looking at, um, you know, the different hormonal panels to see whether or not you could be predisposed to fibroid growth with an estrogen dominant state. But any prolonged bleeding and severe pain should definitely be investigated. Um, if there are any issues with fertility, then typically that is something that will be followed up with no matter what. Um, or if you're getting a lot of that, like what you described, Ash, some of those bladder restriction type 
um, symptoms, like needing to void all the time with that constant pressure, um, that can in some uh, instances be related to fibroid growth as well because of the pressure um, coming anteriorly or forwards from the, um, the uterus as well. Yeah, so it's important to realise that not all fibroids are symptomatic in the way of pain or, or bleeding symptoms, mm-hmm. but you could just be getting that abdominal pressure or that strange feeling or that pressure around the bladder or the bowel, just not feeling right all the time. Um, mm-hmm. It's something to rule out. It's something to certainly investigate and just make sure that it's not that. Um, but if it is, then there's obviously things that need to be done in order to stop that long-term problem. Um, I think what's what's another, I guess, an area, in, what are women most concerned about when it comes to fibroids? Because I know that Fertility is the big one. Most people go, will it fertilize? you know, will it cause problems with fertility? Will it cause problems with pregnancy? Um, what can I do? Because I generally find that's the first question that comes after, wow, okay, I found out I've got fibroids. Uh, can I have kids or, you know, will it, will it cause problems? Yeah, good question. And what I see is almost like two sub subgroups of women who might have fibroid symptoms. So there's the women who are still trying to conceive. So they're still within that sort of the reproductive years. And then there's the women who might be perimenopausal. They've either had their children or they're past that time. And they're either perimenopausal or menopausal. But all of their cycling symptoms are not settling. And if anything, they're becoming worsened. Um, as the years go on. So those are the two big questions. It's either a lifestyle sort of discomfort and their quality of life is becoming worsened because of the constant heavy bleeding and pain, or there's issues with will the fibroids actually um, impact my ability to conceive and, um, you know, have a viable pregnancy. So it's those sort of two groups that typically we see will have the biggest issues with them um, and we'll be sort of raising those questions yeah, cool. Uh, let's have a look. So just for women listening, it's hard to visualize this because fibroids, you're thinking of a mass, you're thinking of a growth, and you've just got to imagine the uterus and exactly where around the uterus can be. And some of them can be what we call submucosal, which they grow into the uterine cavity. Okay, so that's the ones where you'll find excessive bleeding within the uterus and therefore heavy, painful periods. You can get these ones called intramural, which is the fibroids that grow within the walls of the uterus. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, so the ones into the cavity, some into the wall and then you get substerosal fibroids which grow on the outside of the uterus um, and some can grow on stalks that grow out from the surface of the uterus as well so and they almost look like mushrooms which they call um, pedunculated so it's there's lots of different types um, obviously four major types there so knowing what type you have and the symptoms that come from that also can change the care or the course of action taken to rectify or to help or to alleviate the problem um, so yeah, it's just, it's important to know that it's normal tissue. It's just simply an outgrowth or a, an excessive growth of that tissue. So we need to ask the question, why is the tissue growing excessively? Why is it expanding or enlarging? You know, why is there continued blood flow to that area? Um, and hopefully we're going to answer some of those questions for you today. Whereas we discussed, you know, what causes the fibroids to enlarge? What causes them to reduce? And also some of the things you do have control over as well. Andrew, with regards to the fibroids, um, mm-hmm. we know that the best way, gold standard, is to look in to have a you know an ultrasonography, ultrasound. Um, some people may get MRIs and things like that because if mm-hmm. they're external to the cavity and they can't quite locate them sitting behind the uterus or whatever, they may need to have uh, other imaging forms. Then once you've been found out that you do have fibroids, what sort of questions should people be asking their doctor? Because I know I so first thing I'd want to know is, you know, well, how, much, how many do I have and, and how big are they? Because depending on size, number, it really does change the possible 
solutions you have for this problem. Yeah, definitely. And uh, interestingly enough, sometimes the size of the fibroid might not even indicate symptoms. Yeah. So, there had, you know, many women have been found with rather large fibroids that have been completely asymptomatic and it's been picked up on, say, a routine examination or um, an ultrasound for something else um, and then they've found that. Uh, so if it is a fibroid that's not interfering with any function, it's not causing any symptoms, um, there's no pain, there's no heavy bleeding, so there's no other health risks, then we can take what we call a watch and wait um, sort of approach to that. So we can just do routine checks, make sure it's not getting any bigger, certainly um, you know, employ some lifestyle changes to have some good uh, positive impacts on the fibro to try and reduce it in size, but that would be very safe to watch and wait. Whereas, yeah, um, whereas if the fibro is really affecting the quality of life of of the the poor woman um, or if it's impacting fertility and there's a lot of pain or other organ involvement then that might be a different kind of approach is to look at you know how we actually address this and what route do we need to go down Um, the questions that someone should be asking is um, you know do they know how long it's been there for how many are they how big is it Um, what sort of tests do we need to evaluate you know what kind of risks there might be. And if they are um, trying to conceive, is there a potential of it actually affecting their rates of fertility too? So these are absolutely the questions that they need to be talking through with their their GP. Yeah. And once you do know that, then the next questions have to be, well, what are my treatment options? What can I be doing? What, uh, what options have I got? Obviously, a lot of women who've heard of fibroids possibly have heard of the extreme end of fibroids, which is when women are getting hysterectomies. And that's an incredibly scary thought right there. But there's a lot of things that can be done before the most extreme end of the spectrum, which is to have a full hysterectomy. And I know you have some experience with that too, Andrea. Yeah, look, uh, oh, it'd probably be about 10 years ago now. Um, in particular, my mum had quite large fibroids that were bleeding within themselves that were expanding rapidly. She had really, really heavy periods, um, which were not getting um, any better. And um, unfortunately, I was overseas at the time. I, I wasn't really aware of how severe the situation was. I was kind of getting drip-fed information. Um, and what mum was advised to do was to have a, um, a full hysterectomy. So, you know, that's what she went and did. Um, and she did have a history of endometriosis and other hormonal issues before that, including ovarian cysts as well. So all of these other estrogen-dominant type conditions that then resulted in, you know, some very severe fibroids. Um, so that was mum's choice. Um, I think she's really happy that she had it done. Um, she had a really good recovery, which is fortunate. Um, knowing what I know now, I think I would certainly try and encourage her to make different changes before it got to that point. Um, but even knowing what I know now, before we even knew that she had the fibroids, we probably would have been employing different changes just given her history of ovarian system and endometriosis anyway, because we already know that these conditions could be predisposing to fibroids and they tend to go hand in hand as well. And let's have a look at that because with um, what we're talking about today, I think from a perspective that we work in, we love preventative healthcare. We love Mm -hmm. preventative approaches to looking after your fertility, your well-being, um, hormonal balance. So hopefully today we're talking to you at a point in your 
I guess, health journey where you're not at the advanced stage of fibroid development. Now, you may be showing some signs and symptoms. You may have diagnosed with some small fibroids or a single fibroid, and you're at a point where we can still turn potentially turn some things around using some very non-invasive uh, forms of care or forms of uh, lifestyle change that will actually help to reduce the impact of these fibroids and potentially prevent them from worsening or preventing from getting bigger or preventing you to go down the path of more invasive procedures such as surgery. Exactly. And, you know, my mum's story is not unique by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I've got stacks and stacks of patients who've gone down a similar pathway um, and sometimes lifestyle changes and sometimes, you know, supplementation and food and all sorts of things may not be enough to make a significant enough change um, for them to have the outcome that they want. So there is, you know, certainly other options. And maybe let's talk through what um, the options are if you do have fibroids and if they need, if action needs to be taken. Um, so we'll give you certainly what the medical treatments are with a bit of information about that so you can do the, your own research there. And this is something you can discuss with your doctor if need be, um, including maybe potential surgical options. But we'll also talk about some of the you know, alternative therapies that are available as well. Um, so in terms of medical management, um, there's two different avenues. And for, for most medical things, it's either drugs or surgery. Yeah, um, and that's so exactly talking, the situation here as well. It's two yeah. options, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. When we're talking mainstream medicine, those are usually the options, drugs or surgery. Um, now, with the drugs, uh, there's a couple of different options. So there's ones that will either increase your androgen production, which are those, you know, classically male sort of more dominant hormones, which is looked at the idea there is to suppress the estrogen um, profile. Um, so things like danazole are used um, for fibroids, which is also used for endometriosis as well. Um, they can have pretty horrific symptoms and can really throw your whole hormonal profile out of balance as well. Um, so when you go messing with something like that, you have to be very, very careful. Um, another route that they use is gonadotrophin-releasing um, hormone antigens or, um, sorry, agonists. So essentially this puts a woman into like a, pen, a, a menopausal state. Again, this is something that they use with women who have really severe endometriosis as well because it kind of blocks that estrogen production. Um, these are only temporary solutions though and they should only be used for a short time and temporarily. Um, there's also another class of drug that they've used um, which is called an anti-progesterinergic drug. Um, I think the um, generic name of it is, and I'm not going to pronounce this correctly, so just uh, bear with me, but it's Myfepristone. Um, and this is actually a drug that they use as emergency contraception in low doses. And it's um, part of that um, medical uh, termination of pregnancies as well that they use. So it helps to really shift that hormonal profile and has been shown to reduce the size of fibroids as well. But again, when you're using drugs like this that are very, very powerful, that have the ability to completely shift hormonal profiles, you have to be very, very careful. Um, so in terms of pharmaceutical management, those are the major three sort of classes there. And unfortunately, what tends to happen is that once you stop taking the medications, the fibroids often grow back and they can grow back quite quickly, um, which can be incredibly disappointing for the women who've gone through these therapies because the intention is to hopefully get that relief and and have that continue. But um, it can be used as well in the micromanagement of 
when someone's really anemic and they just can't get on top of it, it may just prevent that heavy, heavy bleeding to be able to allow the body to restore. But there, mm-hmm. there's certain risks involved, you know, and um, particularly things like the gonadotropin releasing hormone agonists, I should say, um, they can cause bone thinning. They will be generally limited to, you know, no more than six months. Um, you find that they can be really expensive. A lot of insurance companies won't cover them. Um, mm. And, you know, women won't get their periods while taking, which can be <laughs> incredibly relieving. But as soon as they come off them, unfortunately, all the things that they were trying to uh, get away from certainly can come back as well. But on the same side, if there is to be then further surgical intervention, that can be a way to help shrink and reduce that fibroid to limit the surgical complications which can happen from excessive bleeding and things like that. So it's sometimes used in a preoperative approach as well where they try to shrink something before they go in there and uh, then ablace. So what are some of the, Mm -hmm. let's talk about, so they're the three, the three most common ways of intervening on a drug, I guess, angle. Mm -hmm. Then you've got the surgical angles and this is where you'd really need to have moderate severe symptoms in order to consider this at all because it is an invasive procedure. All surgery is invasive, even if there's what we call least invasive procedures. Um, they mm-hmm. still have to enter the body. They still have to cut tissue. They still need to do something. Uh, so there is obviously going to be risks there. I think commonly one of the most uh, common is what I've heard generally is called a myectomy, mm-hmm. sorry, myomectomy. And um, this is generally for women who want to have children after the treatment for fibros. Okay. So it's a way in which they can remove the tissue, but of all things, the risks are still relevant. They still are there. You can still have other fibroids grow in other places later on. So it, um, Mm -hmm. yeah. And depending on how the fibroids actually attach to the uterine tissue and its location, sometimes that type of surgery is not appropriate, which Mm. is why for some women, a hysterectomy is what the recommendation is. Um, and the hysterectomy, you know, I'm, I'm sure we all know, is where they remove the, the uterus itself um, with or without leaving the ovaries intact. Um, that is a very dramatic, very invasive procedure. The uterus is there for a reason. <laughs> Um, I have fairly strong opinions about hysterectomies performed for reasons that are anything other than life-saving because statistically every minute of every day a woman is having hysterectomy and less than 10% of those are actually for those life-saving purposes. Um, I think that's pretty dramatic um, and it certainly has implications for, you know, health later on as well um, and can severely affect a woman's quality of life after that. So it can cause bladder prolapses um, and a whole bunch of other things as well. But that's definitely a topic for another day. Um, there are a couple of other options that are sort of down that sort of pseudo-surgical route. So um, another type of procedure that uh, is used is a uterine artery embolization, which is essentially where they're trying to restrict the blood flow to the fibroid um, it doesn't mean that they can't regrow in other areas and may not reduce the actual size of the tissue itself but it can stop that uh, blood flow to the area and there are there is some research showing that treatment with um, so therapeutic ultrasound um, can help to reduce the size of the the, the fibroid itself however long-term studies on that efficacy is um, still sort of questionable um, so as far as the medical route goes that's kind of a bit of a 
um, as much exhaustive list as, as what is available um, in terms of research at the moment. There's actually just one more as well, which um, most gynecologists will probably uh, tout as being the least invasive medical procedure, and that's actually the ab- ablation procedures. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. And so that's when they, um, from the lining of the uterus, they either remove it or destroy parts of it. Um, and that can be done with laser or uh, wire loops or currents or freezing mm-hmm. or microwave. Um, it's it's basically considered minor surgery in the in the scheme of all of these things we've just listed um, mm-hmm. and generally even can be done on an outpatient basis through laparoscopy. So a lot of them will try that first uh, to see if that can make a change. However, because of the nature of fibroids and the fact that they can redevelop, develop in different areas, mm-hmm. you might ablaze one, but then, you know, months or years later you find that there's continued development. So it can be uh, – really effective. You could be really lucky and it could be the one one stop right there and, and solve a lot of the problems. Or it could be something that needs to be repeated multiple times. And of course, every time you go in there, there's risks of surgery, there's risks of scar tissue, there's a lot of other things as well. So it's just so important to go out, um, speak to your doctor, speak to your gynecologist, give yourself lots of information, do your research, um, because it's scary. Yeah, we, we totally understand when you're faced with all these options, it becomes really scary. Like, what should I be doing? You know, particularly if you're trying to protect your fertility, and protect your reproductive health. You don't want to do something mm-hmm. that potentially could damage you. Um, or if you're a woman who's past that stage, you've got children and you're trying to, you know, not go into early onset menopause because you're having a major surgery, which is going to change your hormones completely. So this is, um, yeah, that's generally the surgical side of things and the, the medical intervention side of things. So we want you to know them. They're, we're certainly mm-hmm. well aware of them. We certainly know that for some women, it can be the only option once things are advanced. However, mm-hmm. But we'd love to try and talk to you girls that are still dealing with some of the early stages or early signs because there are some things you can do with your diet, lifestyle, and other things you can actually have control over that could potentially reduce fibroids, improve your hormonal balance, and, of course, reduce this problem for you. So let's talk about some of the natural treatments for fibroids, some of the things that we suggest our clients use first and foremost to try and uh, reduce the complications of fibroids. Awesome. Okay, cool. So this is where this is definitely an area that you have the most control over, which is fantastic. So the way that I like to look at it, and um, I think that medically speaking, it's hypothesized that um, leomyomas or the fibroids originate from variations to that somatic or the, or the visceral tissue, right? And it happens when it results in there's like a progressive loss of the regulation of the cell growth. So when we're losing the ability to control how those cells are supposed to be growing, that's when things go a bit haywire. And it's true for a lot of, um, you know, benign or, you know, non-benign cancer conditions as well. It's that proliferation that goes unchecked. So anything that's going to help to regulate growth is going to be beneficial. So we want to make sure that we're not feeding it with an estrogen dominant state. So making sure that we're keeping our hormones in balance, um, which is a little bit harder than, than what it sounds, but there's certainly lots of lifestyle factors that you can employ to make sure that this is, um, you know, you're giving your body the best chance it has. Um, so from a hormonal perspective, your oral contraceptive pill is absolutely, or any of your hormonal contraceptive, I should say, um, most of them are going to put you into that estrogen dominant state with those synthetic hormones. Um, we know that for a fact. Um, so, and we know that that also um, increases your risk of developing fibroids. Uh, the progesterone only pill doesn't seem to fit in that category as well, but there's other issues that, with that that we know we don't really need to go into now. Um, 
any kind of stress on the body is going to predispose you to estrogen dominance because it throws the whole hormonal cycle out of balance. So as soon as our cortisol hormones, our adrenaline hormones go out of whack, then it decreases our progesterone production, which means that we're automatically going to be in that estrogen dominant state. So really getting a handle on stress. Um, easier said than done, I know. <laughs> uh, but that is certainly a place to start as well. So recognize your stresses and ta- start to take steps to sort of create a bit of a change there. Um, making sure that your foods that you're consuming aren't containing really high levels of phytoestrogens. Um, so things like uh, soy, um, oh, what else are they, Ash? The, I've, it's completely um, evaded me. Um, <laughs> ah, anyway. Um, any of the phytoestrogens you want to make sure that you're avoiding, but also the xenoestrogens, so the things that are mimicking estrogen for the body. Um, interestingly enough, there were some studies done on the actual fibroid tissue that was removed from women, and they found that fibroid tissue had a very dense amount of DDT, which is one of those environmental um, pesticides. Pesticides, yeah? Yes, yeah, pesticide um, used, and it was very densely concentrated in that tissue. So I'm, I'm postulating, I'm wondering if that um, that actually sped up the growth of the hormone because we know that it mimics estrogen within the system as well. So DDT can feel those little estrogen receptors. So that's boosting your estrogen dominance or maybe that the body was trying to take care of it by encapsulating it within that smooth muscle tissue. Yeah, um, and look, it's in, you in know, the system. Yeah, yeah, and the body is so the fibroid tissue is so hypersensitive to excessive estrogen. So anything that mimics, anything that increases estrogen load, anything that uh, prevents estrogen clearance from the body. So mm-hmm. I tend to go sort of into the idea. Well, if we're showing estrogen dominance, if we're having issues with excessive estrogen that's expanding and growing that tissue, then how are we going to remove that? And I really think one of the very first ways is to to make sure that the liver is functioning well Um, because if the liver is not functioning well you can't remove toxins or excess hormones from your body well then unfortunately you're going to have this uh, old stagnant blood which is increasing in circulation and -hmm. that means that the uterine tissue is getting a lot of excessive amounts of toxins and estrogen and of course that can promote the growth and development of the fibroids so it's one thing to avoid them but it's another thing to make sure that you're primary organs of elimination, the things that are actually detoxifying your body are working really, really well. Exactly, which is one reason why coffee and alcohol um, and some dairy products and meat as well, so some red meat, can actually increase your risk of fibroids as well because of, one, the toxic load on liver, but also because of the fact that it can actually um, increase your risk of that estrogen dominance as well. Um, A really easy way to see if maybe your liver needs support is if you're actually getting large clots within your period um it's a really sure way to see that um you've got a bit of liver congestion happening there as well yeah um in terms of lifestyle change one thing that i really strongly encourage my patients to do is to avoid exercise on the days of the heavy bleeding so go really really gently because intense exercise can actually increase regurgitation of that blood back in to the uterus, which is creating that stagnation. Um, And so not having that good void of blood each month is certainly going to put you um, at risk of of heavier, more painful periods for the following months um, and other things as well. 
Yeah, definitely. So you got there's a couple of different things we can look for. Um, obviously, I always go dietary support first, and then mm-hmm. we can talk about herbal support, so where you can add a couple of extra things to support. Let's mm-hmm. talk about some of the dietary tips for reducing uterine fibroids um, because, look, honestly – if you're not having a whole foods diet, if you're not getting the right stuff in, you can dump all these herbs and supplements into the mm-hmm. system and they're still not going to have the desired effect because we're not getting the digestive elimination pathways working well and therefore the absorption rates of the things you're putting in are not going to work as well as they could. Um, so certainly we would definitely encourage a nutrient-dense whole foods diets. Um, mm-hmm. You will need good sources of fibre, so you need to increase your elimination. So you, your dark leafy greens, um, you can use things like broccoli sometimes flaxseed is often indicated in these areas too great for um, elimination of estrogen excess Mm -hmm. Uh, chia seeds quinoa there's a couple of different things there that you can be using look you hear us talk about uh, going gluten-free it doesn't mean you should be grain-free so it can still be important to include grains because they're great Uh, whole grains are good choices but you're wanting to still avoid those white refined grains and um, high gluten loads as well so you might Mm -hmm. need to add into your diet some brown rice or some uh, spelt or even rye and oats just to try and increase your digestive elimination which will rid the body of excess estrogens Um, and of course avoiding some of those saturated fats like you described Andrea Um, sugar, caffeine, alcohol all these junk foods are contributing to excessive estrogen dominance so we consider them total like anti-nutrients, you you shouldn't be having a new diet if you're having problems with with fibroids so um, that's, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's on the, the dietary front. Have you got any other dietary suggestions people can be uh, including to help promote the body's ability to eliminate either toxins or improve this? Definitely. Look, you touched on um, the, the broccoli. So what you're referring to there was the cruciferous vegetables, which really Correct. helps with the detoxification um, and the detoxification pathways through the liver which can be very useful for getting rid of you know those excess estrogens making sure that we've got really good gut health because we know that that has um, the ability to help to metabolize estrogens as well Um, so making sure that you know your your microbiome is is well looked after Um, I love that you talked about um, flax seeds, foods that are really rich in beta carotene, um, which is high in vitamin A, can be very helpful for healing, um, which should help to hopefully reduce the risk of, um, you know, recurrence of fibroids if you do have something, um, say, removed or you do have some sort of surgical treatment there. Um, And things like carrot, sweet potato, kale, spinach, those things are really high in beta carotenes as well. Um, And iron-rich foods particularly if you're getting a lot of heavy blood loss, um, can be very, very helpful. Now, I know we've talked about the fact that you don't want to be going for toxic versions of red meat. So when we're looking at red meat, we want to make sure that organic, if you can, or um, red meat that is grass-fed as much as possible, and if possible, it's finished on grass as well um, because grass-fed meat can then be finished on grain, but it can still be classed as grass-fed. And what happens if it's grain-fed meat? It means that its body fat percentage is a lot higher because it makes really good fat beasts that they can obviously make a lot more money on, but that fat is estrogen dominant. um, It's full of synthetic hormones, um, and then we're actually eating that which is pretty terrible. So I would certainly be encouraging you to reduce your, um, you know, toxic versions of red meat from beef if it's not organic um, as much as physically possible. Um, So your iron-rich foods. 
Cool. Look, that should be a good start. I mean, if you've been listening to us for a while, you know there's some great episodes there on hormone balancing, fertility management. Same rules always apply. It's always about managing the estrogen progesterone balances in the body, and it's no different Mm -hmm. for this particular condition because of the estrogen dominant component. Um, So, ladies, go back to the basics, whole foods, clean foods, avoiding xenoestrogens, trying to avoid pesticides, insecticides, going organic, you know, grass-fed, grass-finished meats. It's it's really the basics in the nutrition side of things. Then Mm -hmm. there's also some great things you can do where there's some herbal support that you could be using to support the body so andrew can you run through the herbal supports that uh, we may look towards Oh, look, this is something that you definitely need to work with your natural health practitioner because when we're changing hormones, again, you have to be very, very specific. Um, there's a compounded um, product that I like to use called, called calcium deglucurate. Um, it's a very, very powerful um, compound that I use with women with endometriosis and fibroids, which has been shown to be very effective. Um, there's all sorts of um, uterine astringents that can be potent, um, things like like Vitex is, you know, the research is a bit iffy there, but for some women it's beneficial. Um, anything that's going to help um, clearance of the uterus as well. Um, so there's a whole bunch of gynecologic or, you know, uterine tonics that we use in Chinese medicine as well. Um, so I would really strongly encourage you to speak to your health practitioner about that because depending on your hormonal state will depend on what you need. I always use caution with progesterone creams and bioidentical hormones because of the fact that depending on where you're at and your sort of stress state, it can just add fuel to the fire. So tread very carefully with that. Um, herbal teas um, can also be really beneficial um, because, you know, they can still be uh, almost like a tonic for the body as well. Um, and anything that's going to help to decrease inflammation, um, like chaseberry, milk thistle, um, dandelion root, nettle, raspberry, all of those sorts of things can be beneficial for the uterus and the reproductive system. Um, However, they can be potent too. So just, again, tread carefully and with guidance. Um, In terms of things that you can do at home, um, you can make castor oil packs, which can help to increase circulation and help with lymphatic clearance and blood clearance from the uterus. This is potent for women um, who have endometriosis or fibroids as well. And we will post a little thing online as to how to make your own castor oil packs. Abdominal massage, mind massage therapy, um, you know, chiropractic acupuncture, anything that's going to help to maintain really good blood flow, lymphatic and nerve tissue flow to the uterine area is essential. Um, And obviously avoiding your environmental toxins, getting regular exercise to help with that, um, the the blood flow and lymphatic drainage as well. However, there's one thing that I want to touch on, um, which I think is really important as well, is the way that our body responds to emotional stress and the correlation that I see with women who have fibroids and some of the things that continue to come up with them. Um, There's always, and you know, in Chinese medicine, there's no separation between mind and body. So emotional stresses are seen in the body and they can have that physical presentation. And that was certainly true for my mom. And it was certainly true for lots of my patients that I see. Um, In terms of energy medicine, um, Carolyn Mace, who is uh, a bit of a guru in this area, teaches that fibroid tumors represent our creativity that was possibly never expressed. Um, So this is something that, that can happen when that flowing life energy 
sort of runs into a dead end, such as jobs or relationships that we've possibly outgrown. And it can also be representative of um, conflicts that we have with creativity, reproduction and relationships as well. So, look, I'm not saying that this is the one and only cause of them, but it would be interesting to just tune in and have a bit of a think about whether or not some of this might be true for you and it might be something that you want to work with a practitioner about to see if, um, you know, some of this stuff is coming up as well. Yeah, it's it's something that anyone who's done a little bit of work on um, sort of chakra medicine or chakra healing mm-hmm. that will will resonate with this because um, there's just so much, I guess, reference to how that chakra stagnation can mm-hmm. result and manifest in physical symptomology. And this this is thousands of years of observation of the human form. And if only the body could be broken down to parts so simply the way, way we try to do so in medicine, um, but we know it's not that way. There's so so many energetic field involvements with our way our body functions. I mean, just think of what intuition is. It's an energetic experience. It's not, there's no, <laughs> no particular thing you can test or study or diagnose to understand why some people get intuitive sense for a bad situation or a good situation. So if you're having issues, you know, that sacral chakra is really connected to this idea of sexuality and creativity. And it may be that section chakra, that really feminine chakra that um, needs work. And there's mm-hmm. so many, you know, so many people who can help with that. So it's very tempting to be very medical about this, but we've got to remember energy, mind, body, spirit. It's all connected. So do uh, consider that. If it's something that resonates with you, please talk to the right people and work on that area as well. So that should give you a really good rundown on now what fibroids are, some of the concerns about them, some of the symptoms you're experiencing. And of course, then you've got the medicalized approach, which is drugs and surgical options. However, of course, we're the wellness women. We recommend non-surgical, non-drug-based um, approaches generally first in a situation like this and obviously as sooner the better so as soon as symptoms become present as soon as there's an awareness the quicker the action not leaving it months years to stagnate and worsen so um and some of the solutions we've offered today are the dietary options there you've got obviously the whole foods lifestyle reducing the environmental stress and toxins which affect your hormone and estrogen clearance improving liver function um improving the way in which our body's getting blood flow through exercise Mm -hmm. through massage um and of course hydration is a big one for me as well you know women who are chronically dehydrated think about blood when you're chronically dehydrated you've got stagnation in blood flow as well so dehydration can really uh, rob your body of the ability to regulate your blood cycle and therefore you need to make sure that hydration, hydration, hydration um, and good breathing patterns, stress reduction. So there's so many options there that you do actually have direct control over, that you do have some control over with this situation. Um, And then, of course, consult your medical doctors, consult your gynecologist and just weigh up your options and find out what you think is going to be the best solution for you. Awesome. So we will certainly post these online and um, we will post the links to some of the things that we've talked about there as well. So you you can do your own research, but certainly speak to your health practitioners about this. um, If you've got any questions at all, we would love to hear from you. Find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash The Wellness Women. Make sure you're following us on Instagram, which is underscore The Wellness Women. Um, Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us a five-star rating if you think that we deserve it. And make sure that you share this episode with anyone who you think um, might benefit from it as well because, you know, this is how we spread the message about real holistic health as well. Um, Ladies, we love that you've tuned in with us today and we look forward to uh, being with you next week. Until then, be well. 
This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.